Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Lovely to see you sitting across from me here today. And you. As always. <laughs> it's a joy. Yeah, it really is. I sound like I'm being sarcastic. I mean, you sound like you're being incredibly <laughs> I'm sarcastic. Being in- intensely sincere. Anyway, moving on. Today, we are discussing a theme that I have been wanting to do for a long time. It's migration in literature. In a world increasingly dominated by xenophobia and wall building, on this show, we will instead look to the books that cross borders, from the novels of John Steinbeck to Zadie Smith. I'm really glad that we've held out on this theme because we really do have the perfect author guest here today for it. Her name is Valeria Luiselli, and her latest novel, Lost Children Archive, is about both a road trip one family takes across America and, you know, peripherally also about child migration at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's a really beautiful novel full of voices and texts and ideas, and we're really, really excited to talk to her. So, Octavia, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about Valeria? I absolutely can. Um, Valeria Luiselli is a novelist and also a nonfiction writer. She was born in Mexico City and grew up in South Korea, South Africa and India. Uh, She's the author of the essay collection Sidewalks, the novels Faces in the Crowd and the Story of My Teeth and Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions. She's the winner of two Los Angeles Times Book Prizes and an American Book Award, has twice been nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Kirkus Prize. Much decorated is Valeria. Um, Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Granta and McSweeney's, among other publications. It's been translated into more than 20 languages and she lives in New York City. And we're so pleased that she was able to come in and come onto the show because the book is just phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. And um, it's just been long listed for the Women's Prize. I should also mention. That's really exciting. Exciting. So anyway, today we will be talking to Valeria about Lost Children Archive, more generally about migration and literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So come and tear down walls with us today on Literary Friction. <laughs> I'm sorry. It I, seems, yeah, that, I know. That's and it's terrible, like, <laughs> Carrie Plitt. Well, it's bad also because it's making a joke of like Something that's a serious crisis in our world. So <laughs> I apologize. I take I take these issues very seriously. Yes, and you we're, do. We're, and we're trying to do our small part here on Literary Friction. That's absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> Valeria Luiselli, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Lost Children Archive. Could you set it up for us? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm going to read a short passage that takes place uh, in a bookstore in Asheville. So the family has been traveling for a few days. In this this book, uh, a family leaves New York. It's a, a woman, her husband, and two children. And they're driving from New York toward Arizona. And the marriage is not in its best moment, to say the least. And she is thinking about asking a bookseller for a recommendation. I've never asked a bookseller for a book recommendation. Disclosing desires and expectations to a stranger whose only connection to me is, in abstract, the book, seems too much like Catholic confession, if only a more intellectualized version of it. Dear bookseller, I would like to read a novel about the banal pursuit of carnal desire, which ultimately brings unhappiness to the ones who pursue it and to everyone else around them. A novel about a couple trying to rid themselves of each other, and at the same time trying to desperately save the little tribe 
they have so carefully, lovingly, and painstakingly created. They're desperate and confused, dear bookseller. Don't judge them. I need a novel about two people who simply stop understanding each other because they've chosen not to understand each other anymore. There should be a man who knows how to untangle his woman's hair, but who decides not to one morning, perhaps because now other woman's hair has become more interesting, perhaps because he has simply grown tired. There should be a woman who leaves, withdrawing either slowly or in a single sad and elegant coupe de dé. A novel about a woman who leaves before she loses something, like the woman in Nathalie Legere's novel, the one I'm reading, or like Sontag in her 20s. A woman who begins to fall in love with strangers, possibly only because they're strangers. There's a couple who loses the ability to laugh together. A man and a woman who sometimes hate each other and will, if they're not stopped short by a better part of themselves, block out the last ray of innocence left in the other. A novel with a couple whose only engaging conversations are about revisiting past misunderstandings. Layers and layers of them, all merged into one enormous rock. Dear bookseller, do you know the myth of Sisyphus? Do you have any version of it? An antidote? A piece of advice? A spare bed? Do you have a good map of southwestern United States? I finally asked the bookseller. Thank you. I think that gives a wonderful sense of this book that is full of texts and echoes and also um, is very aware of its own creation. I wanted to start by asking, your last book, Tell Me How It Ends, was structured around the questions you translated and asked migrant children facing deportation. And I wonder why you wanted to return to that subject in part and also in fiction this time. Yeah, the chronology is, is not quite like that, though. Um, I started writing this novel, notes for this novel, in the summer of 2014 when the crisis was announced as such. Um, basically, between October 2013 and that summer of 2014, 80,000 children had arrived alone and undocumented at the border and were seeking some form of legal protection, asylum or, or similar visas, right? And... I was traveling uh, with my family from New York to Arizona that summer and following the news of what was happening at the border. And I started taking notes uh, and making notes of what was happening. And I continued to do so uh, when, after that summer, we returned to New York and I became um, part of the group of volunteers in immigration court that interviewed children to basically figure out what their cases were and if then a pro bono lawyer could take on that case and defend them against deportation. Um, and at some point I realized that I was already deeply into a novel that I had started that summer, but that I was using that novel as a space to uh, dump all this confusion and... Um, and political rage and sadness and and the testimonies themselves that I was hearing in immigration court. And that really wasn't going to work. Uh, I was creating this horrible, stuffy monster of a novel that, like, I don't know, had these long digressions about American interventionism in Central America in the 70s. So, you know, just not working. 
so I stopped writing the novel, and I wrote Tell Me How It Ends, which is uh, just a slim volume, a nonfiction piece that addresses the issue very straightforwardly um, and offers a kind of x-ray of the American immigration system and also um, a panorama of, of the USA-Mexico-Central American immigration corridor right, and, and the historical uh, roots of this particular diaspora. And once I was able to do that, I, I was then also able to return to the novel and, um, and not feel that I had to use that novel as a, a space for, um, for educating people on immigration at all, which is you know, the, the most horrible kind of fiction you can read, one that attempts to educate, um, but rather just really a novel, uh, a novel about uh, a family, a novel about nothing, as novels are really, and every, a novel is more like a slice of life than, than anything else, right? Where, I mean, a novel, novels are about death and divorce and love and solitude and loss. And, and this is a novel with an immigration crisis, but it's certainly not a novel about this particular crisis. It's more uh, a space from which to, to look at political violence. I think that um, one of the things that st stood out for me was that even though there is like a lot of tenderness and a lot of love and like you say, the story of a family and the story of a relationship, that rage is still there. As And for me reading it, I connected with it and, you know, it was a very powerful experience because it's an insane situation, right? Like that's the thing. So it it was really, I was very pleased to read something that was touching on this those emotional reactions to something that is so live. And especially right now, you know, with the Western political system in this insane situation of kind of crumbling. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the, I guess, the, the digestion of that for you as a writer, which, I mean, you just kind of explained a little bit, but how kind of broader political rage comes into the personal space in that way. Um, to make it clearer, like there was a, a, a strand that came through for me about women having to choose between political ideals and familial ideals, which is, you know, depressingly still a reality for a lot of women. And I wondered if you could share any thoughts about that. Yeah, that is one of the main subjects in the book. Um, and I think I approached it through through trying to understand or explore at least two different mechanisms or two, two, just two, two different entries into, into that. One of them that was very clear to me is that at some point, I don't know if in our lives, um, in, the, in, in the story of a person's life, or at some point in just recent history, the distinction between our public and political life and our private or familial life became absolutely blurry, right? And again, I don't know if it's a, a question of age, something that happens to you in your 30s, or, or if it's really also just this political moment that um, has made it very clear to so many of us that we, we cannot live pretending as if our private lives were somehow isolated or uh, safely tucked away from from 
the constant political crisis around us. So although this family in the novel is traveling in what seems like the the small protected little sphere of this car that's moving through the U.S., uh, there's there's really like holes everywhere, right? There's of course like the radio that's constantly reminding them of what's unfolding, and 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 then just the 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 children reacting to the stories that that they hear uh, either the parent the parents speaking about or or directly uh, people commenting um, on, and that's the other thing. Um, the other way in, I was talking about two ways into this the subject. The other way in was children themselves, right? And how I, I, I kept on thinking uh, while writing this novel how children's take, children's versions, children's reenactments or rearticulations of reality um, fill space with a kind of bizarreness, right? If you're in a room with more than one kid, sometimes it only takes one kid, but, but if you're in a room with one kid, immediately a different kind of electricity uh, arises. And I, and I wanted to create uh, a space in which the chil- children's bizarre and, and often a little bit eerie imagination starts kind of spilling over into what seems like the normality of uh, a family life and changes the pH of the room completely, right? Um, so it's really the kids who are constantly listening to and then reenacting and, um, and interpreting the complete fucked up mess around them that allow for reality to sort of spill in, right? And, and dilute that, further dilute that already blurred distinction between the outside and the inside, the political reality and personal or familial reality. I certainly felt that in this story. The voices of the children are so strong and you capture so beautifully um, the the bizarreness of the way that children play with each other. You're, you're constantly, there, there are two um, children in the novel in the backseat of the car and they're constantly playing these games where they've absorbed things that you've been talking about that they've heard on the radio, but sort of repurposed them in this way mm. that's monstrous, but in some ways seems to reflect the situation better than than any of those other mediums could. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's the point, right? By like the children shed this um, bizarre light on things, but in doing so just show how much what we consider normal is actually perhaps not not as normal as as we think and it's a very tender portrait I think of children and of parenting Um, and I wonder as when you were writing this novel how did you get into the space of how children might react to things and what their voices sound like and how they play I mean I don't know I guess that that's just my job right (laughs) it's it's like like yeah how does a surgeon open up a a person's uh, belly and operate that that's that's the um, the very basis of 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 um of of this of this job right of this um it feels kind of weird to call writing a job it is <laughs> it certainly it isn't definitely it's is. tough. um it's just such a pleasurable job too um but i mean being able to step out of oneself or at least as much as possible and fully inhabit another uh, person's mind is 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 what this is about, right? It's 
definitely n- not about um, picking a picking out traits and kind of putting them together as as like as if you were like building this I don't know a little clay figure and 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 then you have something that vaguely resembles a, a human being. No, it's really about completely inhabiting, living inside that other person that you are um, slowly putting together, right? And I mean, my my daughter would would make fun of me. Um, I'd put her to, to sleep every night and then go up to my studio to, to work. And uh, she's very... She's very teasy. She'd say, "So, Mama, you're going up with your little friends, with with your imaginary friends now." <laughs> and that's exactly what it feels like sometimes, right? You, um, I mean, I lived in this, not only in this novel for years, but like in the minds of these people. And yes, of course, it's hard to to inhabit the mind of a ten year old. But I also spend so much time around kids, either in that period interviewing them in court, and then just surrounded by kids in my own family and I I mean yeah I observe observe them I wanted to ask you about uh, the way that marriage comes through in the book as well because as much as it's about family it's about the relationship between these two adults and these this you know raising questions of commitment and of kind of compassion and that very complicated shared project of a relationship um, and I wonder why you wanted to write about that. What drew you to that experience? I don't know. I've somehow most of my, actually all my novels, I've only written three. <laughs> That's quite a lot. <laughs> More um, than us. <laughs> all of them are somehow about divorce. Um, <laughs> but you would need to uh, to find me a divan and, and ask me why. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> uh, there's, yeah, that comes up. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of what I write is moves around this kind of silenced center, which is loss or the fear of loss, right? And this novel is certainly uh, doesn't necessarily address fear of loss in any way directly, but it it constantly kind of spirals around that fear. Yeah, and the fact that it's inevitable. I mean, the the father, a husband-father figure, his audio project is all about recording echoes. So he's, his whole kind of um, raison d'etre is focused around absence and loss, isn't it? And ghosts. And ghosts, yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's full of ghosts. But yeah, it's like, uh, well, it's full of like present absences or absent presences. And, and th- another kind of absent presence in the book is, uh, are these two girls... Um, who have migrated to the U.S. or attempted to and have been detained at the border. And between one detention space and the other, they've gone missing. And the the narrator knows their mother and has, has committed to, to helping her find these girls somehow, although she has no clue as to where to even begin, right? Um, and those two girls... I mean, in my own experience, are are based on. I mean, they're they're fictionalized, of course, but the, their characters are based on these two girls that I interviewed in court many years ago, or five years, or four and a half years ago. I'm not sure, who had migrated to the U.S. Very, they were very little. They were five and seven years old, and had traveled with uh, 
these shirts where their grandmother stitched uh, their mother's telephone number. Their mother lived in the U.S. And just to make sure, because they, they were little, they wouldn't remember her phone number, just to make sure that when they arrived in the U.S., a border patrol official could see that telephone number stitched on, on their collars and, and call their mother, right? And um, when I interviewed those girls in court, it became really clear that because they were so little, they weren't quite able to um, articulate a story that would be deemed as a strong case by any lawyer. So the most probable outcome for them was deportation. And I never knew what happened with them and if they were indeed deported or not, even though they were now reunited with their mother. And so that space of unknowing that those lives whose destiny I really knew nothing of, that tremendous loss, a story of loss or possible loss, is also like at the at the heart of the novel. Uh, it's sort of the, the the motivation for sure behind a lot of uh, what the the narrator decides to do. Uh, but it was also a driving force for me that 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 fear of loss, that fear, vicarious fear of a mother having lost her two girls after all. It's so frustrating this idea that people have to be able to articulate a story to prove um, that they have worth um, or that they deserve to stay and it just, that made me think a little bit about the project of fiction as well you know we talk all the time on this show about the sort of value of a story the value of a narrative and you know especially because as you articulated at the beginning you've really written at something that you were thinking about in a, both a non-fictional and a fictional way. I wonder if you thought about, you know, what what's the value of telling a story rather than documenting it? I often question myself about the the value of fiction not on, not not generically but in in addressing political violence or immediate reality or in which way I mean we have we have reportage we have um, like journalism we have we have I mean different forms of journalism and photojournal there's there's so many uh, direct ways of documenting immediate an immediate crisis or, or, or a current situation that why why would fiction come in and what could it add to to that right and my, I mean, I, I don't have a clear answer, but I, my sense is that we, we have a limit to how much we can, we can internalize in the news that we hear every day, right? We have, there's a limit to how much we can be moved by um, a, a, a photograph that depicts some horrible tragedy or um, snippets of news that remind us to what degree the world is falling apart and but um fiction perhaps like music comes in through somewhere else right it it seems to like strike 
I don't want to say deeper chords in us because it's not a question of hierarchy, but it but different ones, right? It, a fiction, a fictional story remains in us like a memory of something we have lived somehow, right? The the faces we see in inside a fiction, the places that we see through the eyes of characters become part of our lived experience somehow, right? There's so many cities that I haven't been to, but that I kind of have been to because I've read books in which they are constructed. And and I think that that the the particular depth of that of that experience, of the experience of fiction, adds a really important layer to the way that we relate uh, to the world. Yeah, you place things in different contexts, don't you? I mean, the thing in this book that comes home again and again is just by using the worlds of the children in the family, mm-hmm. it really makes it clear that these migrant children are children, you know, because the horror of that story, I think, for lots of people, and the word migrant, the word migrant is so dehumanizing and alienating. For a lot of people, it, it allows them to not engage with the fact that these are children and these are, you know, human beings at that stage of development where they have this fantastical understanding of reality and they have no protection and they need people to protect them. I mean, um, you say in, in the in the book that a child refugee is described as someone who waits and this idea of like uh, waiting and uncertainty is hard enough for us to understand as adults, but for children and for the child mentality to get its head around, it's like, it's a whole different thing, I think. Um, and, you know, the way that fiction and fiction writers engage with ideas and spin stories around them is quite similar to that childlike perspective, isn't it? It's like, how do you digest the information the world is giving you? and then turn it into something that makes sense. I don't know. I think it's a I thought it was a really powerful well, way. Well, it's like playing, right? Exactly. It's, I mean, fiction writing is playing, but it's like a very serious game. The way that children's games are very serious. I mean, there's rules and there's a there's a series of things that it you seriously engage with. I don't feel too different when I am writing a scene to how I felt when I was 9 years old and enacting a scene with a friend of something right that's great yeah (laughs) i mentioned at the beginning that this is a book filled with other texts and not just other texts other photographs other ideas other novels other writers other thinkers and um that felt really special to me well you you say i think at one point and i want to remember the phrase because it's so lovely Yes. Um, You're talking about reading other writers and you say how books and or authors can provoke microchemical raptures um, when when you read them and they say something that you know to be true about the world, but you haven't quite figured out the way to express it or you feel that they express it in a sort of revelatory way. And I wonder if that is one of the things that informs this use of all of these other texts in your books. Yeah, it's it's partly that. I mean, yeah, you're referring to this like fuck yeah moment moment yeah. Right? where where like someone has given us a shape in which to to put something that was amorphous but already forming in us, right? Like a, a particular feeling or a, that that all of a sudden like has a clearer meaning for us once once someone has given us the exact word or combination of words to to think about and. There, I mean, there is, there is, of course, 
that or that is a reason why I bring in so many other voices and uh, ideas of other people into my work. But it's just also like a general, um, I guess, poetics um, in the sense that like I, I, I am a reader and I consider myself more a reader, first a reader than a writer. And that means that what I, that basically means that what I love the most is the conversation with, um, with the dead. I mean, not in a morbid sense, <laughs> but, 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 but with those that came before us and sort of bringing that, keeping that conversation alive. And I, and, uh, and also that conversation with those that are not here, but, but, but that are writing contemporaneously. And, um, I mean, I think of, of, of writing as, 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 a, as an ongoing conversation. That's why things like this, these like really strict copyright laws are, are so suffocating and stupid. I mean, you, if I quote someone, a, a line from a poem from someone who is alive, and I go through the estate, I have, you have to pay hundreds and sometimes thousands of of dollars or pounds. I don't. I don't know if you've had that experience before. A friend, a friend yeah. who quoted Lou Reed, in this one not not particularly brilliant line. It's so cold in Alaska, and had to pay. <laughs> <laughs> and had to pay. You know, you know that song where it's so cold yeah. in Alaska. Well, that costs two thousand dollars. I mean, that's just an extreme example of of something that. Um, that can really kill conversation in literature. If you're not, if you can't bring in others' words and have a dialogue with them on the page, what are we doing? To to everything just becomes uh, like falsely new, right? And 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 not an echo of so many other things. And anyway, so I bring in. I mean, a lot of my my um, the things that I bring in are more than 80 years old because <laughs> I pay $2,000 to quote Lou Reed. Um, so anyway, it's that and it's, it's sort of to keep that conversation alive. And it's also that I like books that are n not like enclosed spaces, but, but books that take me to other books, right? Kind of like maps to other places. And um, so I, in an attempt to be coherent, I write books that hopefully take people to other books. Wonderful. And one last question. Um, this is your first novel in English. Why did you decide to write it in English? And what did you find the most liberating and the most difficult about that experience? Yeah, it's it is my first novel, f I guess, fully written in English. But it's also not a new experience in the sense that um, I English was a language in which I learned how to read and write. I was five when we moved to Korea and I went to an American school there. So it was always my, the language of instruction, um, always a language in which I read. And it was more like the first time I wrote in Spanish um, was, was, a, was, a, was a very personal and almost political decision to write my way into my mother tongue that had become a very distant, uh, almost dead language for me. So I wrote my first book, Sidewalks in Spanish, Papeles Falsos. But also that's tricky because, in fact, I wrote some of the essays in Papeles Falsos in English first and then kind of retranslated them. And, um, 
And then Faces in the Crowd, my second, my second novel, I started writing in English and wrote the first 50 pages or so in English. And then I moved to Mexico in the middle. And all of a sudden, I couldn't write it in English anymore. Mm. So I changed. And so basically, what I'm saying is, it's been a lot more like a lot messier. Like the writing, my writing process has always been uh, like this tug of bilingual tug of war. And then the notes that I take for my books are always completely bilingual to the point where sometimes I begin a, a sentence in English and I look out in Espanol. Um, so this novel had like m many, many notes, many journals that are bilingual as well, completely. But at one point, and, and a lot of those notes are, should I write this in English or Spanish? <laughs> 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 which is the language? Oh, I can't start writing until I know which language is the right one. Postpone, postpone, postpone. Eventually, one day in Berlin, with my notes, with the Polaroid pictures I had taken from the trip, I sat down and I started, probably started writing in Spanish, didn't work. English it worked and I just followed that um, that pulse yeah at some point I thought that I could write it by like in both languages at the same time but that was a very naive <laughs> idea <laughs> I love that Valeria Luiselli, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I have about 20 more questions to ask you. I know Octavia <laughs> does too. And, and thank you so much for writing this beautiful book. Um, it's called Lost Children Archive and it's out in the UK now. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is migration in literature. We live in what some have called the age of migration. So there are people moving around more than ever all over a globalized world, some by choice, but some also by necessity. We also live in an age of walls. I mean, this has been, you know, I'm summarizing something everybody knows, but it feels like we are in a moment of intense, intense political debate about migration. Um, and so we thought it was a really good time to discuss it on the show. And also we had the wonderful opportunity to have Valeria on. So what can novels tell us about migration that other pieces of documentary evidence can't? Well, I think as sort of came up in the interview with Valeria, they give, they give a human face to these things that these experiences that can become very divorced from the humanity and the human cost because they are so emotionally hard to digest. Um, and for those of us that are living relatively comfortable, um, static lives, to fully comprehend the exhausting reality of, of a life that is, you know, a life lived in migration, a life lived on the move like that, I think I think it's very easy to shut it down. And the wonderful thing about fiction is that it brings it proximate without beating you over the head with it as a kind of political message, which I think is what people need sometimes, you know, to, to humanize the realities of others. Um, and to put it in the context of, you know, a voice that you find yourself in conversation with um, and to place it in the, in the in experiences of character that you can understand, that you could imagine living yourself. 
like one of the things in Valeria's novel, you know, they listen to David Bowie a lot and um, Space Oddity. And, you know, as you read about that in the book, you hear it in your own head. And then immediately that creates an empathetic link between you and the characters. It's little little tricks like that can really draw you in. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think that has a political element in this case, giving a human face to migration, because, of course, one of the political weapons used against immigrants or migrants is that uh, is is sort of painting them as less than human, as a horde or a mass. And one of the wonderful things about fiction is that it is a chance to completely refute that, because when we can see into the minds of others, um, there's no way we can't conceive them as fully human. Um, and I think some of, for me, some of my favorite books about migration are, are books that really do that, whether they're, they're actually talking about the experience of migration or the sort of immigrant experience in a new country. I mean, I bring up Americana every time, every month, but I'm going to bring it up again. Um, because I think Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is, is one of the best documents of what it's like to move between countries and, and the experience of being an immigrant. I think I'm probably particularly interested in the American experience because that that is my own experience. And I think there's a lot of really, really great literature about immigration in America, whether it's um, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair or The Grapes of Wrath or The the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Juno Diaz, who I know has been complicated as an author. But I still think that book is a really, really, really amazing piece of literature about um, Dominican immigrants in in the US. Yeah, for me, um, The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mohsin Hamid was was a big one um, for the American kind of immigrant migration experience. And in the UK, I mean, White Teeth by Zadie Smith and Brick Lane by Monica Ali are still two of the kind of standout ones. Um, And I think, you know, we've talked, we've touched on in other shows how the narrative of migration is something that is very well understood in the context of the United States and maybe isn't doesn't take up as much space in narratives about mm. the UK, but it certainly should do. And I'm really glad that it's starting to more and more. Um, because, yeah, the, the, the fact is that these nations are, first of all, great colonizers of other nations. Um, and second of all, you know, very diverse and multicultural places in ways that are not uncomplicated. Yes. Um, and, and in ways that are fundamentally horrifically hierarchical, which is what's terrible. And what you were saying about, you know, migrants, immigrants being grouped together as a mass is uh, is this act of dehumanization. And the only way to counter that is to individualize the experience and give it personalities. Of course. And one of the other things that I've always loved about novels is their ability, maybe more than any other art form, to hold multiple ideas at once, to to think not only about a certain idea, a certain message, a certain consciousness, but be a sort of jangle of voices and decisions and ideas. And I think in some ways that maps on really well um, to talking about the immigrant experience because immigration is never a simple movement from darkness to light, you know, it's complicated. And I think some of the best narratives about this, and especially ones that have been published recently, show the complexity of somebody maybe coming somewhere expecting something that isn't there. Um, so there there was a great book published last year called America is Not the Heart by Elaine Castillo, which is about a Filipino woman um, moving to the United States. Um, we Need New Names by No Violet Bulawayo, um, I think the re- reluctant fundamentalist is sort of the 
the, a perfect example of that is is shows it sort of counters that narrative of people coming to America for a better life and and succeeding. It's about how somebody is radicalized by the sort of capitalist racist society that America is, um, and and that I think can be more instructive um, rather than just humanizing people. It's about how. It, you know, it's this whole it, it breaks down this whole concept of the good immigrant um, as somebody who has to be completely happy with their lot. I'm totally compliant with the hegemony of wherever they land. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the thing about the Western idea about this stuff. Right. And like that, the wonderful book, The Good Immigrant, um, completely breaks that down. Right. But also because of giving uh, the platform and voices to immigrants of all different kinds, because that's the other thing. Immigrant, again, as this overarching term, which is, yeah, such a violence in and of itself in many ways, when it's spoken in the mouth of like a white Westerner, um, it totally erases the fact that anyone can be an immigrant, you know, and moving from one place to another in many ways. Yeah, Yeah, and for instance, I'm an immigrant, right? Right. I I came over from the U.S., and I live in the UK now, and yet nobody ever forces that term upon me. No, and people it's, would and call it's you very an much be, Yes, exactly. It's very much because I am a white, privileged woman. Yeah, um, you're not. You're not a, an. A, you're not fleeing economic or um, political hardship. You're not. Your life was not in danger. It's the. It's kind of phrasing things or couching things in a different way, isn't it? It's like the idea of the immigrant is someone who's left because they had no choice. Yes, and that's not always the case at all. Um, or, you know, the, the label economic migrant yeah. or political migrant. But it's so complex because there are thousands of reasons why somebody might move from one place to another around the world. Um, and obviously those are broken down by all the intersections of, uh, again, hundreds of different forms of privilege or lack thereof. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's the thing that makes it so complex. The other thing that I think, um, well, this is, I suppose, a, a lesser political point and more kind of a metafictional point, but that came up for me reading the Lost Children Archive, Lost Children Archive, sorry, I should say, uh, is that literature is itself in many ways about migration. And um, it's something that Valeria's book really gets to the heart of, but plenty of other authors are exploring this too, the way that stories and songs and other you know, ways that human beings have been expressing themselves for generation migrate from one place into another, from one consciousness into another, and get um, absorbed and regurgitated in different stories and become you know, uh, appropriated into our identities. Literature has this phenomenal capacity to be a completely hybrid entity. And I think that you know, when you're looking at ways of exploring stories about migration, and as you said, literature's ability to hold many truths in in its kind of hand at once makes it one of the perfect modes of exploring this idea that you might be somebody who has many different identities and many different coalescing uh, experiences of the world. You know, I, I think it's I think it's really rich territory for that, and I also think it's super super important that more um, voices writing from inside that experience are finally kind of getting the chance to sing on a much, much broader stage. They've always, it's always been happening. It's just that like very main mainstream publishers haven't been giving them the space. Yeah. That finally, you know, it feels to me like there's a bit of a sea change happening. And I think the internet has a lot to do with that yeah. as well. I think people talk about something changing. It will be interesting to see whether things actually change. In the long um, run, yeah. I think people like Nikesh Shukla, who uh, edited 
The Good Immigrant, which I want to recommend, so I won't talk too much okay. about it. But, um, but is a big part of that is, is so, making yeah. publishers take account of of how they publish work and the voices that they publish. And it's only been a good thing, but it's easy to say that you want to publish diverse voices and yeah. immigrant voices in it, and it's another thing to actually to actually put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, and actually that brings up a question that I think a lot of people are thinking about now: is do you think that people can write about an experience of migration that is not their own. You're saying this so slowly. I mean, <laughs> it's such a... Uh, I find it hard to answer because on the one hand, my immediate instinctive reaction is no. <laughs> no, if you're a white Westerner, you know, no. Mm. But then I also think it's very dangerous to put restrictions on what people can explore in the space of literature. So it's complicated but my, my no comes from the fact that I know Dave Eggers did it. <laughs> and I just think... Old Dave. Oh, good old Dave. Um, I don't know. I feel, I feel conflicted to have the strong opinion that I actually kind of do have in my gut. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. What do you think? I probably feel the same as you, although... I kind of want it to be a test case rather than a rule. Yeah, I feel um, I, I agree with you. If there. that makes sense. Yeah. Like I, th I want something to be in front of me rather than to say no, cancel, absolutely not, never. Yes, I agree. But also, I guess I would ask the question of a of a writer who has never experienced any form of migration themselves. I would I would ask, you know, is that the best way to tell the story that you want to tell to get inside the consciousness mm. of someone who's going through that? Like, by all means, write a story about migration. But maybe there's a way of writing it that is less exploitative of a perspective that your ability to appropriate is totally based around yeah. your privilege. I, yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. And I think Valeria, to some extent, that that was the project of of Lost Children Archive was not, you know, writing a story that still is about um, children migrants on the border, but isn't just telling their story. Exactly. And it problematizes that whole thing about how we appropriate the experiences of others yeah. and how we can mimic and we can echo and we can dress up in. But I think the conscious, careful thing to do is always to acknowledge within the work that that's what's happening. Um, and if that does happen, then I think it's okay. It's it's sticky. It's, yeah, it's sticky. And I think it is one of the great questions about art that we are asking today. I, I agree. And I, I think the thing that makes me stumble over my words a little and feel like I need to couch it in all kinds of, you know, platitudes is that our generation has this reputation for being hypersensitive and political correctness gone mad and all that absolute right-wing bullshit that gets thrown at us but I do think that there is a sensitivity to these conversations and it's really hard to strike the right balance yeah yeah I agree what's your favorite book about migration well it's Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer um interesting I would not have expected that of you really yeah I read He's it. quite a, a self-serious man. But it's so funny. I haven't read it. It's it's like hilariously funny. Okay. I mean, I to be fair, it's a book I haven't read since I was 17 when I first read it. I don't know how it would stand up. Um, I think maybe I went back to it in my early 20s, but 
it was I'd never read anything like it and it was pressed into my hands by a boy I had a crush on and you know it's like the book came to me in this kind of heady moment and we were on holiday in France and it I love I laughed so hard I nearly wet my pants and then I also wept um so it was a very intense experience (laughs) um and it's it, the narrative unfolds on two levels and it explores the intersection between kind of the autobiographical and the fictional um, and the power of stories informing our identities and the need for some people to journey both literally and metaphorically to kind of find things out about themselves. So one strand of the story is the fictionalized history of Trockenbrod, um, which was a real exclusively Jewish shtetl in Poland before the Holocaust. And it's where Jonathan's grandfather was born and Jonathan, the writer, was born in America, so he's an American Jew. Um, and then it's also about his, the author's trip to Ukraine in search of memories and remnants of this place. And then also about his experience of writing these stories. So there's a lot of metafiction happening. There's a lot of slipping and sliding between reality and unreality. It's, yeah, it is so funny. There's a dog called Sammy Davis Jr. Jr. who is a seeing eye bitch, but she's blind. I mean, like, that's just like a little nugget uh, of the surreal stuff that goes down. Um, and it's yeah it's a very tender portrayal I guess of the importance of returning to homelands for deeper understanding and I like the fact that it works in the double direction of um, you know Jewish refugees to the states but then also the position of the American who wants to understand their immigrant past in the context of a different country Um, but I also want to give a very quick shout out to Virtuoso by Yelena Moscovich who we interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago which is very much about migration and also a book My Cat Yugoslavia by Python Sertovsi who we also had on the show which is another beautiful book about migration so there we go Okay, what's yours? <laughs> well, I already said what mine is, but oh, yeah. it, it is The Good Immigrant, um, which is a collection that came out in the UK in 2016, edited by Nikesh Shukla. It's a collection of pieces by 21 writers discussing the immigrant experience in the UK, whether in fiction, whether a sort of memoir, prose, lots of different ways of approaching this idea and lots of different perspectives. And what is great about this collection is through this Um, collection of voices, you see just how multifaceted the experience is. It's impossible to reduce it to one experience. And it's funny and it's poignant and it's sad and it's angry. Um, And it's, you know, the experience of reading it is so, so, so important. And it's just some great writing as well. I'd really recommend um, Riz Ahmed's essay, the the actor um, who, who writes a brilliant, brilliant essay about his experience in the UK. Um, But also I wanted to talk about it because The Good Immigrant USA has just come out and it's edited by Shukla again, but another writer called, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, but Chaimini Suleiman. I've only just started it, but I can already tell that this is going to be just as good as as The Good Immigrant UK. Plus, it features some writers who I already really, really loved and, and I believe have talked about on the show before, including Jenny Zhang, Teju Cole and Mona Chalabi. It sounds awesome. Also, just listeners, we had Selena Gordon on the show talking about her essay, which was part of the Good Immigrant yes. UK, which you can find in our archive. Um, and also, just a heads up that Nikesh edits something called The Good Journal, which came out of the project of The Good Immigrant. If you want constant uh, updating on, you know, BAME voices basically yeah. writing about all sorts of things, yeah. and you can donate to them, and you should. He is doing great things. Yeah, really, Nikesh. really good work. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad you flagged that up and I cannot wait to read the American one. Can I borrow it, please? They didn't send me a copy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here back with Valeria Luiselli and Octavia Bright to give our book recommendations this month. Um, Valeria, could we have your book recommendation, please? Yeah, uh, I'm going to recommend two books. Um, one of them is by Jackie Chang, and it's a book called Carceral Capitalism. And it's a brilliant essay on mass incarceration in the USA. Um, she's she's a young she's a young woman. I think she's still a student at Harvard, um, and I think this is her first book. But it's a it's a very very lucid um, kind of rearticulation, or also kind of I guess just a dismantling of uh, how a very profitable incarceration system, the industrial prison complex, will continue if it continues to be uh, a private industry, um, the one that is locking up so many black and brown bodies in that country. Um, it's one of the smartest books I've, I've read in a long time. And the second book that I'd recommend that just came out in English, actually, and is long-listed for the Man Booker International, is Samantha Shreblin's Mouthful of Birds. Everything that Samantha Shreblin writes should be read. <laughs> she is one of the, the strangest, most original brains that, that I know. Um, she's in English. Previous to this book, uh, she's published Fever Dream in Spanish mm. called Distancia de Rescate, but this book, Mouthful of Birds, is actually her first book or second in Spanish. I think her first book. She, she published it years ago in Spanish, maybe more than 10 years. And it's um, a book of short stories. They're all um, somehow disquietingly bizarre. You don't know exactly why, but something's always kind of um, like it's like water that's running uh, below you somehow that, that, that you don't see, but you sense and uh, yeah, she's just uh, one of the most talented writers writing today, Samantha Shrublin. Wonderful. Great to have both of those recommendations, neither of which I have read. So, and after reading your book, I want to read books that you recommend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you like them. Despite the fact that um, I, I love that we started this by you reading a passage about how you never take recommendations from booksellers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Octavia, could I have your recommendation, please? You betcha. Um, I really, I wanted to recommend a graphic novel this month, and partly because I found myself thinking of it so much while I was reading Lost Children Archive, because it's also about echoes and place and um, intersecting layers of temporality. It's called Here, and it's by Richard Maguire. Um, and it describes itself as the story of a corner of a room and of the events that have occurred in that space over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. Um, it's going to be really hard to do it justice in words because uh, it's super visual, um, but it's so clever and so poetic. Essentially, each page is a snapshot of the same place from the same perspective, but jumping around from prehistory through like the 1500s through to the present day, all the way into 2013, 
where the world is imagined as entirely submerged in water. 2313, sorry, not 2013. 2313. And all the way into 22175. I don't even know how to say that date. Um, where nature has taken over again and the world is just full of these extraordinary kind of dinosaur figures once more. Um, and then within each page, there are these little windows from other years layered on top. So basically, whatever spread you're looking at, you're going both backwards and forwards in time. So on one layout, you might see the room from 1960 with like a fire in the grate and some kind of lava lamp situation um, but then overlaid with a small window from 2126 of a stingray floating in this now submerged future world and then one from like 1624 of white settlers interacting with Native Americans trying to have a conversation so it's really clever and it's very beautiful very thoughtful and I just thought it was super innovative in its approach to storytelling but also really really enjoys and demonstrates the unique ways that graphic novels can tell stories where you know you have a combination of image and text um and a, a, it can become more like a collage i guess in some ways so yeah it's fabulous i really recommend it oh, that sounds amazing yeah you i think um, you'd love it i think you'd absolutely love it and it's also it's funny because the idea of the world in 22175 being reverting back to nature is actually very comforting at this point in the, in the climate change debate, which yeah. I maybe never thought I would say, but I'm like, get rid of the humans. Yeah, Let erasure nature. of humanity, bring back. You <laughs> as know, long as nature can come back, yeah. I'm happy. Giant hummingbirds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Um, so this is going to be pretty sycophantic, so I apologize <laughs> in advance. Um, but I'm going to recommend a book that I was encouraged to return to by Lost Children Archive, Valeria. Um, it's the photography book Immediate Family by the American photographer Sally Mann, first published in 1992. This is a record mainly of Mann's three children, Emmett, Jesse, and Virginia, at their home in rural Virginia. And I can still remember when I first encountered this book, which is always, I think, a good sign of a, a book that really means something to you. It was on the shelf of one of our family friends, and I just happened to pick it up one day, I think when I was either a young kid or or an early teenager. Um, and I didn't fully understand it, but I just knew it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. And I thought about it for years and had sort of forgotten who it was or what it was. But I just remember those images just replaying in my mind of, of these children. Um, and I bought it years later and I still have it on my shelf and I still think about it all the time and reading about it that the narrator in Lost Children Archive talks about that book and describes it and reading that description made me return to the book and experience it all over. And we talked earlier about um, the phrase that you use, Valeria, microchemical raptures to describe um that feeling that you get when somebody describes something in a way that just makes total sense to you. Um, and I really felt that way about the way that you describe Sally Mann, which explained to me in part why I find this book so affecting. So again, really sycophantic, sorry. <laughs> but, but the narrator says, I've always liked the way she sees children and what she chooses to see as childhood. Vomit, bruises, nakedness, wet beds, defiant gazes, confusion, innocence, untamed wildness. I also like the constant tension in those pictures, a tension between document and fabrication, between capturing a unique fleeting instant and staging an instant. I think that's beautiful. And um, so I'd really recommend that anyone check out Immediate Family by Sally Mann. It sounds amazing. It also makes me think of the work of Nan Golden, 
yes. it has a similar yeah, lens. They are doing similar things. And I, yeah, I had a similar reaction to Nan Golden's photos when I first saw them, but I've never seen the Sally Man, so you have to show me. You must. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Valeria Luiselli, Paula at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. Please say hi. We love to hear from you. We do love to hear from you. And also, if you do feel that you would like to rate us on iTunes, it really helps. So we would love that. That would be so awesome. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>